The first verse said, Who may go up the hill of the Lord and stand in the place of holiness? Only the one whose heart is pure, whose hands and lips are clean. Uh, Jonah saw a city and wept over it. Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem and wept over it because it did not recognize the time of God's coming. And now we confess our part in the self-centeredness, the blindness, the sin of the life of our nation and our world. Together we say, God of mercy, we acknowledge that we are all sinners. We turn from the wrong that we have thought and said and done and are mindful of all that we have failed to do. For the sake of Jesus who died for us, forgive us all that is past and help us to live each day in the light of Christ our Lord. Amen. So may the God of love and power forgive us and free us from our sins, heal and strengthen us by his Spirit, and raise us to new life in Christ our Lord. Amen. So, Jonah, a sign of things to come. At the end of the 8th century AD, the Vikings arrived in England. And in 793, they made their first attack on a monastery, the one at Lindisfarne, Holy Island, off the coast of Northumberland, founded 150 years earlier by St. Aidan, sent there by the monastery of Iona, off the coast of Scotland. And our next song is going to be a song from the Iona community. The monastery at Lindisfarne was famous for its learning. The beautiful Lindisfarne Gospels, which are now in the British Museum, were painted there. And that Viking attack in 793 devastated them. And it was the start of what was to be a century and a half of Viking raids and war in England. Coming from Scandinavia, they were fierce, brave, and they certainly gave no quarter. Alcuin, one of the foremost scholars of the ninth century, said of them, Never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. The heathens poured out the blood of saints around the altar and trampled on the bodies of saints in the temple of God like dung in the streets. They were greatly feared by the Saxons, who were forced to buy them off or face much worse at their hands. Now you may be thinking, What's he, why is he talking about Vikings this morning? Well, I'm doing that to give you a feel for what Jonah would have felt about the Assyrian nation and their armies. Because this, the Assyrians had a justified reputation for being the cruelest of all invaders. If I were to describe how they treated their um, foes in battle and the civilians that they came across when they captured a city uh, it would turn your stomachs on this lovely sunny morning so I won't do it and in our own lifetime we could draw parallels with the worst war crimes committed in the second world war or even more up to date the terrible things done by ISIS and if you think of those things and those people you will have some sense of what it felt for Jonah when he was asked to go 
and preach repentance to the Assyrians. The book of Jonah is perhaps the most extraordinary book in the Old Testament, maybe in the Bible itself, when you think about it. Jonah is one of the twelve minor prophets. The others are Micah and Hosea and Amos and Joel and so on. And in most of those twelve minor prophets, there's almost no story. There's plenty of message, but no story. In Jonah, it's the reverse. It's nearly all story and very little by way of message. The only message really is repent or judgment will call upon you, come upon you. But there is, as I say, plenty of story. And what a story it is. A story full of the strangest of events, as well as one which shows us a flesh and blood person, as we heard in that reading, getting petulant, feeling sorry for himself, feeling angry at God because God wasn't behaving as he wanted God to behave. It's a flesh and blood, Jonah's a flesh and blood person with all the contradictions that we have in our own natures. But to my mind, the most extraordinary thing about this story is not the amazing story of the great fish or the whale and the swallowing there. No, it is the message of the book, which is that God's mercy and care are for all mankind, not just the Jewish people, and not just quite nice people either. It is for all mankind and womankind, whatever they're like. You know that so much of the Old Testament is about the people of Israel being God's chosen people, his favoured people. So much of it is about their need to remain set apart and distinctive from all those pagans with their many gods and their abominable practices. And yet, here towards the end of the kingdom of Israel, not long before it is actually overrun by the Assyrians and disappears as a nation, here is a book that says God's care extends even to them, to the neighbors, to their enemies, to the very people who were to destroy them. It's a revolutionary message for the Old Testament. And it's not one really that Jews took to heart. That is why so much of the the Bible is about the difficulty those first Jewish Christians had understanding that God's grace was indeed for the Greeks and the Romans and all the other Mediterranean peoples. And what is even more, even if it was for them, they didn't then have to become pretend Jews. And so those first Jewish Christians found these things hard to understand. They knew that the promise to Abraham Abraham was that through his offspring all the nations would be blessed. But I don't think they really ever got that. They never quite understood how that was to be worked out. And indeed you might think it's a mystery how the book of Jonah ever came to be incorporated in the Bible in the first place by the, those people in the times before Jesus who put what we call the Old Testament together. But it did. And in the providence of God, it's there because it points so clearly to what was to become true several hundred years later. This strange prophet Jonah, with his running away, his intense dislike of the message that he had to bring, which was that God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In all his self-pity, uh, he didn't understand that. 
but his willingness to sacrifice his life to save the sailors on the ship as he did, that same Jonah points the way to Peter and Paul and Jesus in the New Testament. And it's the parallels with Peter and Jesus that I just want to uh, turn to now. Jonah is not unlike Peter. In fact, Jesus calls Peter the son of Jonah in one of his addresses. Both of them are flesh and blood characters with sterling qualities that run alongside grave weaknesses. Jonah attempts to run away from God. Peter also runs away from Jesus on that fateful night of the trial. When God calls Jonah a second time when he's been washed up on the beach, so too uh, Jesus calls Peter on the shore of Lake Galilee after he's messed up and says, Peter, are you really going to love me and follow me now? And Jonah responds that second time with a yes, and, Jesus, and Peter responds that second time with a yes. But the greatest parallel between Jonah and Peter is to be found in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, you remember, Peter has gone on a little speaking tour. And at the end of that chapter, he's to be found in Joppa, staying at the home of Simon the Tanner, Joppa's modern-day Jaffa. Now, do you remember where Jonah fled when he heard the voice of God? He went down to Joppa. So there they are, Jonah in Joppa and Peter in Joppa. And what happened to Peter in Joppa? Well, one day he goes up at lunchtime for midday prayers on his own on the roof of the house and he falls, as you will remember, into a deep trance and he sees all these animals, many of them unclean to the Jewish understanding and a voice saying, eat these. And Peter says, no, 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 I can't eat these. Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And three times that happens and then he wakes up and then he hears his name being shouted from down below in the street. He goes down to investigate, and there are three men who've come from Cornelius, from the town city of Caesarea, just down the coast there. Because Cornelius, again, as you remember, had a vision, had an angel saying, go and send for Peter. He's got something to say that I want you to hear. So Peter his friends go with the three men the next day to Caesarea where he hears Cornelius tell his story and an enormous penny begins to drop in Peter's spiritual mind. And as soon as Cornelius has finished speaking, the very first words Peter says are these, Ah, I now realize how it is true that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is the start of such a major turnaround in Peter's thinking and in the church's thinking. And it's one that he follows through on. Although the Romans weren't as cruel as the Assyrians, although they could be pretty cruel, to Peter and the rest of the Jewish people, they were the occupiers, the oppressors, with all their pagan gods. And for Peter to understand that God's grace extended to this Roman centurion and to many other Romans was a huge leap of faith to have to make. Unlike Joseph, though, he did make it. And he was eventually to rejoice 
that salvation was not just for the Jews. And he goes back to Jerusalem. He gives the other apostles an account of it. And then they say, it says, the scripture says, is when they heard what Peter to say, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There's still a distance for Peter and the others to travel in what it means for non-Jews to be part of the kingdom. But the process is started and won't be reversed. But the greatest sign or parallel that Jonah has is with Jesus himself. When you think about it. Because Jonah is both like Jesus and not like Jesus in very obvious ways. Jesus ran from his calling to go to the unlovely. Jesus came precisely to come for the unlovely and to embrace those who others would not embrace. Jonah's name means dove. And when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God, like a dove, descended on him. Jonah, on that boat, encountered a terrible storm, but slept all the way through it, or halfway through it, until he was woken. Remember the storm on the lake, where Jesus was sleeping in the boat, and the disciples had to wake him, both men sleeping in the midst of this storm. It's, but it's Jonah's disobedience which has brought about the storm. It's Jesus' obedience and faith which ends the storm and which brings about an end to the trials and storms and punishment which faces humanity. To his credit, Jonah offers to save the lives of the other sailors by saying, throw me into the sea. It does him great credit. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So the sailors asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down from us? Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So he's willing to take responsibility for his actions to save others. Jesus was, of course, blameless. And he, but he nevertheless willingly offered his life for the world. As we shall say later in our service, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then the parallel which Jesus himself picks up here Jonah was in the belly of the whale or the great fish for three days before being spewed out onto dry land. Just as Jesus was in the tomb for three days before being resurrected by the power of God at work in him. Finally, Jonah was angry when he saw the repentance of the people of Nineveh. Jesus rejoices when he sees the repentance because he actively came to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus was all too aware that Jonah was someone who pointed forward to him. As we heard in the New Testament reading, when asked for a sign, he didn't perform a miracle, but pointed to a sign they had already received and known about for hundreds of years, the sign of Joseph. 
A wicked and adulterous generation, said Jesus, asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jonah is a sign of the greater and better things to come to Peter, to Paul, to the gospel, to Jesus himself. And the message is that God is not the God of one nation or one class or one religion. His grace is extended to all, even the most unlovely of people, that he is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. I wonder if there's a group of people whom you find it very, very difficult to accept or love. Or when you see an image of them or hear about them, your hackles begin to rise. Or maybe even more personal, is there someone in your life that you find it impossible to be gracious and compassionate towards and slow to get angry with? Is there anyone of whom you might say, I could never forgive them for what they did to me or what they did to so-and-so. Well, if there is, that wouldn't be anything unusual or unique to you. You would be in plenty of company with other human beings. And there may well be good reasons why you feel that way towards this or that person or this or that group. But you also know, because you're here today, you know that holding on to prejudice and enmity and lack of forgiveness is not the way of Jesus, nor should it be or need it be the way of those who seek to walk in his footsteps. If the story of Jonah has prompted you to think again how you regard people around you or across the world, then don't run from those prompts as Jonah did, but let God work in you so that you show in your life, I show in my life, something of the compassion, acceptance, and grace that has been shown to us all in the face of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and in the empty tomb.